in this series in which we are for a few weeks before Easter, we're looking at the church and we looked at the authority of the church and we looked at the marks of the church and now we're going to be looking at the mission of the church and we're going to look at, not surprisingly, a text from Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 20. It's on page 926 in the Bibles that are available to you. Matthew 28:16-20 Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe All that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and Redeemer. Amen. I'm not sure when it became popular in management theory that all organizations should have a mission statement, a vision statement, and a set of values. That was some time during my time in Mexico, because now I've come back and everybody has a mission statement, a vision statement, and a set of values. I read somewhere that that is sort of falling out of favor, but but I haven't noticed that. Everybody still is leading with their mission statement. I'm going to give you a few mission statements of some well-known companies and see if you can identify them to see how these mission statements operate. Okay, here's one. To be the Earth's most consumer-centric company where customers can find and discover anything they might want to buy online and endeavors to offer its customers the lowest possible prices. Yeah, okay, that's pretty obvious, right? Okay. Establish blank as the premier purveyor of the finest coffee in the world while maintaining our uncompromising principles while we grow. Yeah, Starbucks, right. Okay, wow, you're you're sharp. Okay. To give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information instantly without barriers. Twitter, right, Twitter, good, okay. Uh, This one's a little harder. To enable people and businesses throughout the world to realize their full potential. Lots of companies could have that one, couldn't they? That's Microsoft, but that would fit a lot of different companies. Here's one. This This is short and punchy. We save people money so they can live better. Walmart, exactly. Good, you're sharp. Okay, to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Google, Google. yes. Okay, i got to come up with some harder ones. Um, to help people around the world to have the perfect trip. TripAdvisor, trip yes. Wow, you're hard to stump. Okay, the maintenance of international peace and security. UN, United Nations, yes. Okay, great. Okay, bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world, and then, if you have a body, you are an athlete. Close. Nike, yeah, Nike. Just do it, right? Okay, here's another one. To prevent and alleviate human suffering in the face of emergencies by mobilizing the power of volunteers and the generosity of donors. 
American Red Cross, okay. To build the web's most convenient, secure, cost-effective payment solution. PayPal. PayPal? Okay, one more. (laughs) To give people the power to share and make the world more open and connected. Facebook. Wow. Very impressive. Very impressive. Let me present you another one. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ in northeastern Broward County and into other parts of the world. Florida Coast Church. You are amazing. Amazing. That is our mission statement. And it is very uncreative. It simply restates what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 28 and adds where we're starting and to where we would like to go. But we're going to look again at this familiar passage in Matthew 28 that's often called the Great Commission, uh, in which Jesus commissioned his disciples and gave them and gave us a common mission, the mission of the church throughout all ages. And then we'll consider how our church fits into that mission that he gave to his church. Now, Matthew is interesting in a number of ways because he ignored all of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that took place in Judea and around Jerusalem. He, he jumps right over those, and those were the first ones, but he jumps right over those, and he jumps right to the appearance to the disciples in Galilee. And look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples, obviously Judas is missing by this point, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now in the Gospel of Matthew, this plays a uh, a rhetorical role, because by mentioning a mountain in Galilee, he reminds us of some other instances that some significant things took place on mountains in Galilee. The first one in chapter 5 of Matthew, there is the Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapter, uh, chapter 17, uh, he took three of his disciples and went up on a mount, and he was transfigured. And so we, we refer to that as the Mount of Transfiguration. So now, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, and at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where is Jesus? He is with his disciples on a mount in Galilee. And this has another purpose as well. And that is, what uh, Matthew is emphasizing here is the setting aside of another mountain, of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where the temple was. And by jumping over the, the, the instances of Jesus' appearance to his disciples in Jerusalem and jumping right to Galilee, he's removing the focus of the gospel from all that took place around Gal- or in Judea and Jerusalem, and now he's, he's moving it out. So it's very appropriate that he would give this commission to his disciples as he's already moved the locus of his activity outside of what was the focus for, for centuries for the Jews, which was Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And as we read the gospel, we, we realize that what happened there was that they rejected Jesus, and they crucified Jesus, and then he rose from the dead. And so uh, they, uh, back in the, 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 the Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the capital of God's activity, if you will, they had rejected the Messiah, and now the Messiah goes to a mount outside of Jerusalem and gives his disciples a commission. 
the eleven remaining apostles, it says in verse 17, went to the mountain and they saw him. In verse 17, and when they saw him, it says they did two things. First of all, it says they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Now, this word worship uh, in, in English is very specific because it has to do with recognition of, uh, of, of a god. Uh, that's how we use it. But the word uh, in, that's used here is a word that could mean something, something as simple as they bowed to him. Or it could be all the way up to they worshipped him as deity. Now, in this instance, in this instance, it, it, it is the stronger meaning that they worshipped him. Well, think about what they had just experienced. They had seen that he was crucified and he had risen from the dead. And so they were putting it all together and they were recognizing who he was. This is the same word that's used if you go back to, well, we can do that back to Matthew, I don't have it up here, but on Matthew 14, chapter 14, verse 33, there was this, this time when they were in the boat, the disciples were in the boat, and they were having a hard go of it on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus came to them, but not in another boat. He came to them walking on the water, and then there was this instance of uh, Peter going out to him on the water, and uh, then Peter having some trouble navigating the waves, and then they get into the boat, and then it says in verse 33, it says, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And so here we have, when we come to 28, half a, half a gospel later. So in the middle they say they worshipped Him and they recognized Him as the Son of God. Here at the end, once again, they are worshipping Him. Not just bowing down, they are worshipping Him and recognizing Him as divine, as God. But then it says something curious here. And you might want to keep a finger if you still have it in Matthew chapter 14. Because there's curious, something curious here. He says, but some doubt it. But some doubted. It says they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now this word doubted appears only twice in the whole New Testament. Uh, this, this word, the Greek word. And it appears here, and it also appears back in the incidents with Peter walking on the water. Because after Peter was looking at the waves and stopped looking at Jesus, looking at Jesus he was faltering and sinking, and he called out to the Lord, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand. This is verse 31 of chapter 14. Reached out his hand, took him out, took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you down? And this is the only two times this word appears. And it's, it's, it's not easy to figure out what this means here in verse 17 of chapter 28. But one of the possible meanings is hesitation. Not necessarily intellectual doubt. That's what we usually think of when we think about doubt. But hesitation. Why did you hesitate? It could fit in the chapter 14, and it would fit here. Because they're encountering Jesus. He's on the mount. They've come to Him. And there might be some hesitation about now, how do we approach Him? And they, they approached him by worshiping him, but they might have been somewhat awkward in this man with whom they'd eaten and drank, drunk, and they, they lived with for three years, and now he's risen from the dead, and he's recognized as divine, and how do you, how do you manage that sort of a relationship with your friend whom you're now recognizing as divine? There might, it may just mean that they were, they were sort of awkward and hesitant, not that they, they necessarily doubted who he was, because we find them all doing what? 
worshiping him. So that may be what is going on here. Now, in his mercy, seeing that his disciples were having some distress, even as Peter was having back in chapter 14, seeing his disciples were were doubting or at least hesitating, it says, Jesus came to them. Jesus came to them and said to them. So here we see Jesus' mercy. He's coming to them as they're sort of faltering toward him. He comes to them and he speaks to them. And what he speaks to them is what we call the Great Commission or the Great Mission. And in this Great Commission... It has three aspects to it. The first aspect is the prelude. Verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And once again, this fits in with something that happened at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel. If you go back to chapter 4, and I think this is on the screen here, chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel... There's the temptation scene with, uh, with Satan is tempting Jesus. And then in verse 8, he makes a final attempt. And he said, the devil took him to a very high mountain, a mountain once again, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So the, the initial temptation was, Jesus, if you take a shortcut... I have some authority over all the kingdoms of the world, and if you take a shortcut, you just worship me, you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all authority on earth, because I can do that. Whether he could or not, he might have been exaggerating what he could actually do, but that was his his offer, to give Jesus all authority on earth, and he rejected that. He rejected that offer of a shortcut that would have avoided him going to the cross. That was the temptation. You want an easier way to get all glory on earth? then here's the easy way. Just, just, just bow down, and, and you'll get that, that glory, that authority on earth. But look what happened here. He didn't take that. He went the hard way. He went the way that he had to go. That was through the cross, through the suffering, and through the resurrection. And what did he get? He got better than what, than what Satan had been offering him. He had just been offering him what? Glory on earth. But Jesus says... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's what, uh, what Paul says in that great hymn that he either composed or included in Philippians chapter 2. And this is up here as well, I believe, where he shows how, how Jesus got all authority on earth and in heaven. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He got more than he had been offered in that, in that temptation. He got authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's a good thing for us because what follows 
is a commission that is far beyond us. And it depends on his having all authority in heaven and on earth for this mission to be accomplished. And that's why he connects this with therefore. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, so it depends on this authority that's been given to him. Go, therefore. Now, this, this, this is the, the commission in verse 19 and into 20. And this commission has, excuse me for bringing in some, some grammatical terms, but it has three participles, ing type words, and it has one main verb. And that one main verb is an imperative verb, that is, it's a command. So there's only one command, and there are three surrounding verbs that support that command. The first, the first participle is going. It's translated here, go therefore, as if it were a command. But actually, it's a participle. Going, as you go. But actually, the tense of this verb puts it before the main verb. In other words, a good translation could be, having gone, having gone, make disciples. So, the having gone is the presupposition. It's the precondition for making disciples. In other words, in order to fulfill this commission, what do we have to do? We have to go. We have to go. And that's, that's supposed here. Having gone, then make disciples. Um, people sometimes ask me, well, how did you become a missionary? And I didn't have one of those calls like, like many missionaries in the 1800s had and the early 1900s had. You read their, their biographies. And by the way, read every missionary biography you can get your hands on. Amazing stories. But they had these calls. I need to go to this people in this part of the world. I didn't have that sort of call. Here's what I decided to do, to try to go, realizing that there are many things that could stop me along the way, but just to try to go. Just assume that I should go because that's what it says here. Having gone, make disciples. And and this is a recommendation I would give to you as well. Assume. Assume that you should go unless you get some information to the contrary. This is the precondition. This is what is assumed here, that, that we would have gone. And so I would say, rather than, rather than being willing to go, and by the way, I would, I would assume that, that most sincere believers in Christ would say, I am willing to do whatever God calls me to do. I am willing to go wherever God calls me to go. But at the same time, they're planning to stay. Willing to go planning to stay. And my experience is, if you're willing to go and planning to stay, you won't ever go. But if you reverse that and say, well, I'm willing to stay, but I'm planning to go, there is a much higher likelihood that you will get to go somewhere else. That's the, that's the first part. Having gone. And now we have the main verb. And this is the, the command. Make Disciples. What are disciples? Disciples are followers of Jesus. Make followers of Jesus out of all the peoples. The word here is ethne, and this is usually translated as it is here. Make disciples of all the nations, 
of all the nations. And when we think of nations, we think of Russia, or we think of Bolivia, or we think of the United States, or we think of Canada, and you think, well, there are disciples in all those nations. The work's done, right? But as some uh, scholars started looking at this and looking at the world and saying, no, wait a minute. He wasn't just talking about political nations. Because, by the way, thanks be to God, there are Christians in all political nations now. So all the nations, as it were, have been reached with the gospel. But if we look at this as ethnic groups, now we have another standard. And as we've already seen, there are still some 7,000 ethnic groups that do not have a native gospel witness. And so what does somebody need to do for them to have a gospel witness? Go. Exactly. Go. Only 85 of those unreached people groups are in the United States. We do have 85 of them, and they're, they're uh, from other places. They've moved here, and they, 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 have ha- they haven't been reached with the gospel yet. They're 85, and so it's conceivable that you could go somewhere in the United States, but none of those are in Florida. So to go to one of these unreached people groups, at least, at least, you would have to go out of the state of Florida. Make followers of Jesus. Um, the way to make disciples is, and here are the other two participles. It says, uh, make disciples of all the nations, and then it says, baptizing them and teaching them. That's how we make disciples. Those are the two steps. We baptize them and we teach them. Obviously, baptism presupposes something. And I refer you to last week's sermon as we looked at where baptism comes in. It comes after there is a, an understanding of the gospel and a response to the gospel of repentance and faith. Uh, and after that much information is received and believed, there's baptism, and then there is the teaching. Uh, of all that Jesus taught us. But, but before we look at the teaching, this is remarkable what he said about baptism here. It says to baptize them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. How many names does it mention here? It says, of the name, so there's only one name, and in Scripture, name is the, is the being, and so there's one name, And then how many persons are mentioned? Three persons are mentioned. So it's one name and three persons. I've actually heard pastors, I don't know whether it's confusion or what, but I've heard them say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's not what it says. It says there's one name, one being, and there are three persons. And this is one of the clearest references to the doctrine of the Trinity. And what's also remarkable here is that Jesus sandwiches himself in between Father and Holy Spirit. And the Jews would recognize that the Father is God, and they would recognize that the Spirit is divine. We see that in the Old Testament. And Jesus puts himself in the middle as the Son. So this is a a remarkable claim on Jesus' part to put himself on par with divine Father and divine Spirit. So baptizing them once they responded to the gospel, and teaching them to do everything that Jesus commanded. The, uh, the baptism part is the initial part. It's not graduation, it's the first day of classes. And we always needed to emphasize that uh, in, our, in our work in Mexico, because people really would want to be baptized and be welcomed into the church, and then sometimes they would disappear 
after that as if they had arrived at the, the goal. But rather we had to emphasize, no, baptism is the first day of classes. Now the rest of your life, you are to dedicate yourself to learning everything that Jesus taught in order to put it into practice. So, if you have believed the gospel, then you should be baptized. If you've been baptized, you should, the rest of your life, be dedicating yourself to know what Jesus taught in order to do it. And then he says, the third part of this commission is a promise. So we have the prelude, the authority, we have the commission itself, the mission, and then we have the promise. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you always to the end of the age. And the mission is sandwiched between the claim to universal cosmic authority and the claim to be with us. So he gives us in the middle a mission that we can't possibly fulfill. But before that he says, I'm the one who has all authority and I'm the one who will be with you wherever you go to the end of the age. This is the only way this mission can possibly be accomplished. And it is the story of how it has gotten accomplished up to this point. Last uh, semester, I had the privilege of teaching a missions course at seminary. And it's a course that I wish I had taught before I was a missionary. Because I, I, I might have been a better missionary had I taught that course first. And I, I, was, I was thinking back as I was, I was reading about how to do missions. And I was thinking about how we did that. And I was, I was appalled sometimes at some of the mistakes we made. And I read and assigned this book on, on the history of missions. And I was, I was appalled and embarrassed oftentimes when I'd, when I'd read about how these missionaries were and, and how they conducted their ministry. And then I'd sit back and be amazed. Because in spite of all their mistakes, and in spite of all our mistakes, the church has gone forward in amazing ways. And the number of disciples on this planet has multiplied manyfold. And we are covering the planet today. And this has been my conclusion as I've looked back on the mistakes of my own ministry. There were times, I have to admit, that I thought I was a pretty good missionary. Um, and now I've had time to reflect and realize it wasn't so great after all. But I look back on what happened in that city of Guadalajara. A family of four, we moved in. Twenty years later, we moved out. Leaving behind multiple churches with hundreds of people, many of whom were new disciples of Jesus Christ. And I ask myself now, How did that happen? How did that happen? Here's how it happened. There is one who has authority in heaven and on earth, all authority in heaven and on earth, and he was with us all of the time that we were there. That's the comfort that this mission will be accomplished because the one who has all authority is with us wherever we go engaged in this mission. Now, that is clear enough. Um, But let's think about this because the church often gets gets off mission. And that's, I think, why businesses are so strong about having mission statements to keep them on track. And the Christian church has often got off track. Sometimes it's gone off track doing bad things. But often, more usually, it's gotten off track doing good things. Doing good things that aren't its mission. It, it, it sees many good things, even biblical things, even scriptural things, and it begins to devote itself to doing those things 
instead of keeping the eye on the ball in the one mission that Christ gave us, which is to make disciples. For example, the mission of the church is not to remedy poverty. The mission of the church is to make disciples among the poor. The mission of the church is not to provide medical care. The mission of the church is to make disciples among the sick. The mission of the church is not to lobby politicians. The mission of the church is to make disciples among politicians. The mission of the church is not to reform prisons. The mission of the church is to make disciples among prisoners. The mission of the church is not to fix immigration. The mission of the church is make disciples among immigrants. The mission of the church is not to provide primary, secondary, or university education. The mission of the church is to make disciples among primary, secondary, and university students. Are all those things good things to do? Absolutely. Should somebody doing, be doing those things? Certainly they should. Are they the mission of the church? No. No. And as I look back, this is one of the things that, that uh, I regret. We took our eye off the ball sometimes with a good purpose. We tried to do a number of things, a community development center and a, a dental clinic and a couple Christian schools and a, a language school and a music school. We tried all sorts of things, concerts, and we tried all sorts of things to try to get the gospel out, to try to meet people and get the gospel out. And most of them didn't work. But they sure were great at consuming time and resources. And sometimes they not only didn't work, but they drove people away from us. For example, when we had to expel their children from our Christian school they would leave the church. And so, sometimes they were even counterproductive. But let's, let's, let's crystallize, let's focus ourselves by, by asking a couple of questions. If the church does not make disciples, who will? And the answer is, no one. No one. It's the only organization on the planet that has been given this mission. If the church does not make disciples, no one will make disciples. It's ours and ours alone. But let me ask you this. If the church does not do all these other wonderful things, feed the poor, clothe the naked, uh, house the homeless, uh, heal the sick, whatever it might be, who will do all these good things? The answer is, Christians will do these things. Not the church as an organization, but Christians will do these things. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5 to find what the calling of Christians is. Not the mission of the church, but the calling of Christians. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is the calling of all Christians to do good works, that people might see those good works and glorify God who is in heaven. But these good works are not necessarily the calling of the church. What's the the mission of the church? Make disciples. But look how this works. This is beautiful how this works. The church makes disciples, and what do these disciples do? These disciples go out into the world and they pursue their callings. And their callings are those callings that bring them into contact with the world and they do those good works and they they take care of people, they love people in Jesus' name. People see that and they glorify God who is in heaven. We could talk about the church as an organization 
The calling or the mission is to make disciples. But the church as the people of God scattered in the world, the, the, the vocation, the calling is manifold. All of the good works that you find in Scripture to do, those are Christian callings. Now, I think this church is a wonderful illustration of that fact. You may not know this, but we have people in our church that are doing amazing things out in the world. Uh, And none of these things are things that we are doing as an institution, as an, an organization, as the church, but we are doing these things in the world as Christians. Individuals in our church have worked to get two homeless men off the streets. They did that of their own initiative as Christians in the world. And other people in our congregation rallied around them and helped to resource them. Uh, People in our church went down to Key West after Hurricane Irma. We didn't do that as a church. Individuals in our church responded to to try to, to clean up after the disaster there. Uh, individuals in our church got the idea of, of doing Christmas child boxes. We didn't do that as an organization. Some people in our church said, I want to do this. Anyone want to join in? And a number of people joined in with that effort of Samaritan's Purse. There's somebody in our church who picks up food at a, at a, a grocery store and takes it and distributes it to, to those who don't have in his neighborhood. There is somebody who teaches at a Christian school. There's somebody who works at a a family ministry where they have a boys' home and counseling and other things. There's somebody who works at an organization that provides affordable housing to the poor. Uh, There is somebody who works in an organization that is in favor of women and helps them when they find themselves in in crisis pregnancies. Uh, There are some women in our church that are talking about going to a school and and doing after-school program to, to help tutor the kids. These things are all taking place as individuals, the people that go to a retirement village every week and spend time with these retirees. Amazing things that are happening. Why? Because somebody said, our church needs a homeless ministry. No. Or our church needs to start a food distribution ministry. No. But because people in our church are living out their faith in the world. And that's how it should work. What's the church to do? Make disciples. What are Christians to do? All of the good works that Christ has taught us to do. Now, let's get back to the disciple making. What do we need to do? To start, we need to do two things. We need to talk to as many people as we can about the gospel. That's where it starts. Talk to as many people as we can about the gospel. And uh, the second thing is to live distinctively Christian lives. And I've told you before that as I talk to people about the gospel, the number one objection I hear is not to the gospel, but to Christians whose lives don't measure up to what they're saying. And so those are the two things. And I'm going to be... At the end of, of the service, there's a, a free book on the counter there. It's free if you read it, by the way. So take it and read it. And it's about developing something that I'm really pleased to see that is developing here. And that is a culture of evangelization. A culture of evangelization. And it describes what that looks like. And it, it doesn't emphasize, if you hear evangelization, you might think programs, you might think events, you might think of activities. But this talks about how a church can develop a culture of evangelization. So you can read that book. Excellent book. But I want to refer to you uh, to, to another book 
that when I came back to the States a couple years ago, almost three years ago now, I, I, I asked myself, how can I, how can I evangelize in the United States? I know how to do it in Mexico. How do I do it here? And I, I found a book written by a guy I know named John Leonard, and it's called Get Real. Yeah, Get Real. Get Real. And let me give you his program. This is his program. See if you can put this into practice. You start your day by saying, Lord, lead me to people today who need to hear about you. That's how you start, by praying. And then, all the people you meet during the day, you assume that they're an answer to your prayer. And, you this is the great part, and this cuts against the grain, you order your days in order to be as inefficient as possible. Why? Because the less efficient you are, the more contact you'll have to have with people. And then he gives examples. He says, instead of buying gas at the pump, he goes in. And he talks to the person in the, in the little store there. Uh, instead of going to the ATM, he goes into the bank. He's trying to be as inefficient as he can to maximize the number of people with whom he has contact. Then the next step. Be kind to everyone. Everyone. Yes, everyone. Even all the tourists that are clogging up our streets, right? Be kind to everyone. And then, as soon as you can, tell them that you're a Christian. Why? Well, that will do one of two things. That will either end the conversation, and then you can move on to someone else, or it'll open up the conversation. And then, listen to them. Listen to them. This is remarkable. And he emphasized this in the book, and I have found this to be the case. People are dying to have someone who will listen to them. I remember... When I was in seminary, being in a little store in a kind of not very nice part of Philadelphia, and I was getting out my wallet, and the, the girl was ringing me up, and I said, I wasn't even looking at her, and I said, hi. And I realized she stopped doing what she was doing, and she just was staring at me. And this was in the afternoon, and she'd been working all day, I guess. I said, y- yes? And she said, you're the first person who has spoken to me all day. Day. And I hadn't. I wasn't even being that guy. I was looking at my wallet. I just said hi, and it struck me how many people out there, with whom we come in contact daily, are just dying for somebody to say a kind word, or somebody to say how are you, and really want to know the answer to that question. So listen to them, and then once you have listened to them then tell them the Gospel. Because something they said to you, the answer to that something is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then, offer to pray for them or even to pray with them if they would like that. Pretty simple program, isn't it? And I thought, this is brilliant. I think I could do that. And I've tried to do that. I was in a Starbucks... One of the Starbucks I go to is not very clean. I'm not going to out it publicly, but another one I go to is impeccable. And I was fixing my coffee, and I try to go out. I don't, one of the great things about not having a study or an office of church building, I, I work out in public. And so I was getting my coffee ready and putting whatever I was putting in it, and somebody was there cleaning up and straightening. And I said, this Starbucks is so clean. I love coming here because it's so clean. And she said, oh, well, thank you very much. And I said, oh, I appreciate your work to keep it that way. And I said, oh, what's, what's your role here? She said, well, I'm the manager. 
I'm the manager. I said, well, congratulations, you're doing a great job. And what person doesn't like to hear that, right? And it was, it was true. And then I saw her name tag, and it was a, a, a name that I didn't recognize. I said, well, that's a very interesting name. I said, I've never heard that before. What kind of name is that? And she said, well, my parents are from, and she named a country in the Middle East. And, and uh, uh, I grew up in Texas, but, but uh, I have this name. It's a Middle Eastern name. I said, oh, really? That's interesting. I said, what religious background are you? She said, oh, we're, we're Muslim, and my dad is an imam. He teaches. And, and I said, what about you? And she began to explain to me that she'd gotten, she didn't use the word secularized, but it wasn't, she wasn't as fervent as her parents uh, in terms of her faith. And I, and I asked her to tell me about her faith, and she explained it a little bit more. And, uh, and then I said, uh, we talked about forgiveness, and she talked about Allah's forgiving, and so on. And then I said, have you ever heard, now this girl grew up in Texas, I said, have you ever heard the Christian explanation of how we can be forgiven for our sins? And she said, no, I've never heard it. I said, well, would, would you like to hear it? She said, yes, I'd be very interested. Thank you. And, and so I got to stand there and explain to her that we can be forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross and through faith in Him. And her response was, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. First time she'd ever heard it. And her reaction to it was, that's beautiful. And I said, was well, there anything I can pray for you about? And she said, yeah, I have a brother. And he, he suffers from Asperger's, and she gave me his name. And I said, well, I'll be praying for you. Now, I was disappointed as I kept going back to that store that she got transferred to New York. But I'm thankful for the opportunity that I had to talk with her about how we can be forgiven. Does that sound like a complicated evangelism program? Does that sound like something you need a, a theological d- degree to do? Not at all. Not at all. And that's what John Leonard said. He says, I'm not trying to get you to get more people in your life. I'm trying to get you to pay attention to the people who already are in your life. This is a small group here. But if you think about it, in this small group that we have in our church, with how many people do we have contact every day? I think the answer would be hundreds. Hundreds of people. Just the contacts that we have in our daily Affairs, And I have to admit that I pass by many, often most, of those people without speaking to them a kind word. And so this is, for me as well, a reminder once again. All those people that are in my life, God has placed them in my life so that I might be a witness for Him. So, what can we do? We can pass them by, or we can recognize who we are, why we're there. We can be instruments in the hands of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and the one who is with us always to the end of the age. So let's pray. Our God, thank you that you have given us Jesus. Jesus to give himself for us to rise from the dead so that we might be forgiven, so that we might uh, be yours. And Lord, thank you for entrusting to us this message of salvation and sending us out into the world. I pray for our church that we would be able to send some of our own out to other places that are less evangelized than, than our own region and that we would be able to participate far, but also that we'd be able to participate near in the mission that you have for us. Oh God, open our eyes, open my eyes, oh God, 
to all the people that you have placed in my life. And I pray that you would help me to be genuinely kind to them, to listen to them, and to have a word about the gospel that would, would answer their deepest needs. I pray for all of us, O oh God, for the hundreds of people that we have in our lives each day, that you would use us to bring good news to them. That they too might come into this kingdom of salvation and become instruments as well of the King until the work is done, until the kingdom has come in its fullness on earth, when Your will will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. We pray this in the name of the King. Amen.